At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please take out the Word of God right now. And if you would, turn in it to the book of 2 Peter in the New Testament, right toward the end of your Bible, 2 Peter chapter number 3. 2 Peter chapter number 3. And we are going to uh, continue to talk about a series we began last week, uh, talking about how we should remember that judgment is coming from 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, some of you know this, but I grew up, I'm actually a little older, I grew up in the 50s and 60s, and in the 50s and 60s, it was the era of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. Some of you who are younger might go, I don't know what a Cold War is. Well, a Cold War means there's really no guns firing, there's no missiles being launched, but there's a lot of threats and a lot of concern. And when I grew up in those 50s and 60s era, I had tremendous concern about atomic nuclear warfare. And all of that really peaked in October of 1962. See, in October of 1962, the Soviets had sent nuclear-armed missiles into Cuba, along with 40,000 troops. And uh, it created a lot of concern. In fact, we actually have a map from the era where you see Cuba down here, and you see the United States, and then there's this concern about missiles potentially being launched into the United States. You know, Miami was some 200 plus miles away, Atlanta, 750 miles away. Now, what is really interesting is that a decade before this, the Federal Civil Defense Administration released a film aimed at children which featured a character called Bert the Turtle. And Bert the Turtle was, and by the way, if you go to YouTube, you can still see this video. And uh, the message that Bert the Turtle wanted to communicate to children is that if you know that a bomb is being launched or if you hear that sound or you see a flash of light, what you need to do is you need to duck and cover. To duck and cover. And uh, what does that really mean? Well, it means if you were at school, what you would have to do, if you heard a big sound or you saw a flash of light, you were to duck under your desk at school and you were to cover your head up, put your hands up over behind your head. And when I was in elementary school, we had drills on this in elementary school. And I actually have some pictures of some kids who were underneath their desks, you know, covering their heads with their hands. They were ducking and covering just the way Bert the turtle told them to do. I have another one here where you see some of the kids underneath their desks. And what really interested me in this particular picture is the the look on the face of that particular girl that is there. You know, I was 11 years old in 1962. And I can still remember, I can still remember being concerned. I remember worrying and wondering, is the world going to come to an end due to nuclear warfare? I I really, I can still remember the emotion that I had. And some of us are maybe even thinking some of those thoughts now with the war 
in Ukraine happening. That was my concern as an 11-year-old, but as I grew in my knowledge of Scripture, I realized the answer was no. The world wasn't going to end due to nuclear warfare at all. It doesn't mean that there would be no nuclear missiles launched, but what it really meant is the world is going to come to an appointed end, as it says in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, by the word of God. It is going to come to an end by the coming of the Lord Jesus and the judgment that he brings to this world. So as we said last time, we began this four-part series on 2 Peter chapter 3, which we've entitled, Remember, Judgment is Coming. And last time, we looked at the first six verses where we said, Peter's message to you and to me is that we should embrace biblical prophecy. And we talked about several positives to biblical prophecies regarding the end times. We said, first of all, these biblical prophecies on the end times breeds confidence that God is truly the ruler of the universe. He is the one writing history. That's why we're helped by this view of biblical prophecy. We said it also has another positive aspect, and that is it calms our fear about the future. We don't have to wonder who's going to win, what really is ultimately going to happen in the end. It tells us those things. And then the third positive aspect of biblical prophecy related to the end times and the second coming of Christ is that it motivates us to remain on mission, to remain on mission. Now, the title I've given to today's message is The World's Approaching Appointment, and we see that in verses 7 to nine. So if you have your Bibles open, I would invite you to just read along with me as I read from chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. Verse 7, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Verse 8, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, as we look at these three verses from chapter three, they really break into three parts. First of all, we have God's coming wrath in verse seven. Then in verse 8, we have God's view of time. And then in verse 9, we have God's heart for people. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. And we're going to begin with verse 7, where we see God's coming wrath. Now, if you were with us last time, in the previous six verses, Peter says that it was by the word of God that God created the world. And he also says it was by the word of God that God judged the world with the global flood of Noah. I want you to notice, at least in the New American Standard, verse 7 has a connective there, and it's translated in the New American Standard with the word but. But this is a connective that also can communicate continuation. We could actually translate the beginning of verse 7 in the same manner as in God creating the world and judging the world with the global flood, by his word, literally by the same word of God, the present heavens and earth 
which is literally the now earth, the, the world that now exists, he says in verse 7, is reserved for fire. Literally, it, it means the world is being, the now world is being set aside for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Now, this is, this is not just a message, again, from Peter. We saw this last time. We went to the book of Isaiah where the prophet Isaiah was speaking, and he said, See, the Lord is coming with fire, and his swift chariots of destruction roar like a whirlwind. He will bring punishment with the fury of his anger and the flaming fire of his hot rebuke. The Lord will do what? Punish the world by fire and by his sword, and many will be killed by the Lord. The wrath of God is aimed at those who are rebellious and those who are ungodly. Now, sometimes, you know, with biblical truth, we use terms and we don't always have a full understanding or we have a minimal understanding of what that term means. And so I want to talk for just a few moments about this term, the wrath of God. And I want to begin by giving us a definition of the wrath of God. What is the wrath of God when we say that? Well, it is his divine displeasure towards sin. That is the wrath of God. It is the outpouring of his judgment in divine punishment. So I want you to look at that definition for a moment. His divine displeasure towards sin, the outpouring of his judgment in divine punishment. Now, it is astoundingly astonishing. This is, this, what I'm going to say now is one of the things that makes biblical Christianity totally unique in the world. It is astoundingly astonishing that God poured out his divine displeasure towards sin, that God poured out his judgment and divine punishment on his son, Jesus, at the cross. Now that is astoundingly astonishing. The wrath that God had for all humanity, for all time, was poured out on his son, Jesus. The Bible clearly teaches us this. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he, speaking of God the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to what? Be sin on our behalf. The great Isaiah 53 passage, the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall where? On him. 1 John 2.2 2. Speaking of Jesus, he himself is the propitiation. That means the total, the total legal satisfaction for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now just ponder that for a moment. You know, my little brain cannot even imagine the ugliness and the awfulness of what was put on the Son of God. Jesus' sacrifice for us provided the way of salvation. 
It was a plan to rescue me and to rescue you from God's wrath. Now that is astoundingly astonishing. Astoundingly so. John 3, 36, this is actually the words of Jesus. It says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But what happens to them? But the wrath of God abides on him. That is why men and women and young people, what anybody does with the person of Jesus is the ultimate pivot point in one's life. Very clearly stated, we can either come under the work that he did for us in taking our wrath, or we have to receive the wrath ourselves. So this is, this, this is the idea of God's wrath. But I also want us to see that there are actually several aspects of God's wrath in the scriptures. So let's take a look at them. Maybe you've never even been aware of this, but there are several aspects of God's wrath in Scripture. The first one is what we might call consequential wrath. This refers to God's judgment and punishment that someone might receive in this life as a consequence for some of the choices that they made in their life. Consequential wrath is spoken of in Romans chapter 1. Many of us are familiar with this passage. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, is actually literally in the original, is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The idea is, since they choose to ignore God, they are going to, as a consequence, receive some of the wrath of God. So if you follow it through the passage, um, because they are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, it says, therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. You want to rule out God in your life? Well, he'll hand you over to a life of impurity. He goes on to say, down in verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. It's the same idea. Since we choose to ignore God, he'll just let us loose so that we can reap some degrading passions in our life. And again, it gets stressed in verse 28. Since they suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. You see how some of God's wrath actually gets visited upon them in their life. So when we're talking about the wrath of God, it's important to understand there are several aspects to God's wrath. The first one we saw is consequential wrath. Another aspect to the wrath of God that we see in Scripture is what you could call end times wrath. It's wrath that relates to the second coming of Christ as he returns to this planet. And when Peter, in 2 Peter 3, is talking about God's wrath, he's talking about end times wrath. When Isaiah is talking about God's wrath, as we saw from Isaiah 66, he's talking about end times wrath. Not wrath that we would necessarily reap in a life of rebellion on the planet, 
but end times wrath. And Paul, when he talks about God's wrath in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he is speaking of end times wrath. Now, if you want a a real detailed look at the end times wrath of God, you simply would go to the book of the Revelation, which Mark is taking us through, Pastor Mark, and you're going to eventually get there, but Revelation chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19 gives us a detailed look at end times wrath. I want to just look at, at one passage which is Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 to 17, looking in the future events when the era when Christ would come back. And it says, The kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves. This is part of God's judgment is falling upon them, his wrath, among the rocks and the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from, here we go, the wrath of the lamb. That's an interesting turn of a phrase. You know, you don't think of a lamb as having wrath, but the lamb is also a lion. Hide us from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So when we're talking about the wrath of God, there are several aspects to it. We've, we've seen that there's sometimes consequential wrath which would come on us. We would experience this in this life as we reject Christ and we reject God. There's end times wrath, but there is also in Scripture eternal wrath, which is really the lake of fire. Now, Again, back to the book of the Revelation in chapter 14, verses 9 to 11. Uh, It says there that if anyone worships the beast, speaking of the Antichrist, and his image, that individual will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. He will be tormented with fire and brimstone, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. That's Revelation 14, 9 to 11. You can also Take a look at Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 to 15, which gives us more insight into the lake of fire. So you have these three different aspects of the wrath of God. So when we come in a study of Scripture where it's talking about the wrath of God, we need to ask ourselves the question, which aspect is it talking about? And as we've stated in 2 Peter chapter 3, it's talking about end times wrath that is related to the second coming of Christ. So as we're looking at these verses, we've looked at God's coming wrath in verse seven. Now let's shift over and look at God's view of time in verse eight. Notice notice verse eight with me again. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Now, verse 8 really pivots off of what had come earlier in chapter 3, which related to the cynics and the scoffers. Remember the ones who would say, where is this Jesus? I mean, will he ever return? It's been, you know, 2,000 years plus. Nothing is happening. Well, you notice what he says there again in verse 8. He says, do not let this 
one fact escape your notice. By the way, this is a command in the original language. He is commanding those believers and us. Don't miss this. (laughs) Don't overlook this truth. Very important truth. And that is that with the Lord, his perspective, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Now, it doesn't say a thousand years is one day, or one day is a thousand years, saying that with the Lord, from his perspective, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Now, I don't need to tell you, but we live in a temporal existence. God is different. He is eternal in essence. And eternity is a realm beyond time. And so what Peter is saying is this, what appears to be delayed to us is truly imminent to God. What does imminent mean? It means sure and impending. I mean, let me put it this way. God sees eternity past, and God sees eternity future, and God sees the present era concurrently. It's just different than us. One of the great passages that I love, Isaiah 55, 9, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We could say it this way. God has a more advanced perspective related to time. We could put it that way. Now, I'll give you an illustration of how this might work. You know, we have four children, uh, all of them grown, three of them married, all of them having some kids. But there was a time when we didn't have four children. We had three children. We had Rebecca and Emily and Kyle. And I remember a time when Rebecca was six, Emily was four, and Kyle was two. And we would set out to drive from Norman, Oklahoma, to go and visit Grandma and Grandpa in Nebraska. Now, in those days, when they were six, four, and two, and you had the speed limits, it would be an eight-hour drive from Norman to Nebraska, where Grandma and Grandpa lived. Now, here's what would happen. We would have a six-year-old, four-year-old, two-year-old loaded in the car. We would get 30 minutes down the road, and then the question was asked. And the question was, are we there yet exactly And I can just imagine in those young minds, the six, four, and two-year-old mind, they had no concept really of, we could say eight hours, but they didn't have a concept of what that was. And and I I can even imagine that there was times on, on those trips when they were thinking, are we ever going to get there? But the difference between them and us is that we had a more advanced perspective of time. I mean, we grasped, we knew what eight hours 
was like. In fact, we knew within minutes when we were going to arrive at Grandma and Grandpa's house. But it seemed to them like forever. The difference between them and us is that we had a more advanced perspective of time. And so it is that God has a more advanced perspective of time than we do. You know, there's a great quote I want to share with you, and I'm, I'm unsure of the origin. I tried to figure out where it came from, but I've heard it for many, many years. I love this quote. Here's the quote. God is never in a hurry, but he's also never late. God is never in a hurry, but he's also never late. Now that, men and women, is a great truth to remember even in our everyday Christian life. Because there's times when we think, I wonder when this is going to stop or I wonder when this is going to happen to me because I want it to happen. We need to remember that God is never in a hurry, but he's also never late. And that's a great truth to remember too when it comes to the return of Jesus and his coming in judgment God is never in a hurry, but he's also never late. So we're, we're taking a look at three different things this morning as we look at verses 7, 8, and 9. We've looked at God's coming wrath. We've seen there's different aspects of his wrath. We've now looked at God's view of time. The third thing we want to look at is God's heart for people. You ever ask yourself the question, why hasn't God pulled down the curtain on history? I mean, some of the current events we see now, why, is, why does he just pull down the curtain? And the answer is there's a reason for a delay. And that reason for the delay is the long suffering of God. Look at verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness but is patient toward you. He's not slow about his promise. It's not that God is indifferent in some way. It's not that he is unable, that he is impotent in some fashion. It's not that he is apathetic. You know, he's busy watching, you know, the, the basketball tournament games. It's not that. It's not that he is incompetent in some way. But here's what Peter is saying. He is working his plan, and his plan is always on time. He's not slow about his promise, as some count slowness to be. Verse 9, it says, he is patient. It's a word that means to be slow to anger. It means that God is not hasty to retaliate. God is not prompt to punish. And aren't we glad that that's true? The Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but he's patient toward you. And then he says in verse 9, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This is this idea of God's heart for people. I direct your attention to Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23. Good passage. It says, do you think 
asks the sovereign Lord, I'd like to see wicked people die? Of course not, he says. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. See, this is a theme that goes all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament. Look at Numbers 14, 18. It says, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. And then in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4. God desires all men, it's speaking of all people, he desires all of them to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then you have Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, which speaks of, I love this term, the riches of his kindness and the riches of his tolerance and the riches of his patience. This is the exact same word that we see in 2 Peter 3.9. Look back in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Part of the structure of the original language here is he is wanting to make room for all to come to repentance. The New Living Translation translates that phrase, he is giving more time for everyone to repent. Now, what does that mean, to repent? Well, I think biblically, repent means to change one's mind regarding who Jesus is and what he has done, and then to choose to trust in him as their rescuer from sin and judgment and wrath. He is giving more time for everyone to repent. And here's what's amazing to me. The opportunity is always open. The opportunity is always open. We even see that on the crucifixion scene where you have one of the insurrectionists who are being crucified being welcomed into eternity. You know, we see this in probably the most familiar verse in, in the scriptures, John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his unique son. Don't ever lose sight of this word, that whoever, whoever, no matter who they are and what they have done, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The opportunity is always open. It's always open. In the book of the Revelation, chapter 22, verse 17, we see the same idea. The opportunity is open. Let the one who is thirsty come, the one who has needs spiritually. And by the way, being under the wrath of God is the most incredible need anyone would have. The one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. It doesn't mean there wasn't a cost. There was a cost and Christ paid it for you and for me. But to us, it's without cost. He offers forgiveness. He offers forgiveness. He offers forgiveness to us. 
Incredible, incredible truth, men and women. Now, as we always do, we talked about looking at verses 7, 8, and 9. We always want to talk about some life response that we could have based on what we have seen. And Peter has given a very clear warning about coming judgment and approaching catastrophe. And so the first life response I think he wants us to see that we should respond with is this. To look to Jesus as your rescuer. Recently, I was reading about the spiritual conversion of the great English preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And Spurgeon was living in Colchester, England, which is one of the oldest cities in England. And on January the 6th, 1850, at the age of 15, Spurgeon had planned to travel quite a ways that day to attend a church. However, there was a great snowstorm afoot, and it was quite cold, so he decided not to travel to the church he was first targeting, but he was looking for some place to go, and he found a very tiny, primitive Methodist chapel. And so, to get out of the cold and the snow, he ducked into that tiny chapel, and there inside of that chapel, there were a dozen people. And the regular minister was absent, and in his stead there was a very thin, uneducated man who was bringing the teaching from Scripture that day. And the text that he was using was from Isaiah 45.22, where it says, Look to me, and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. Now, as Spurgeon remembered back on that, he said, as that man read the scripture, he couldn't even pronounce all the words correctly. That's how uneducated he was. But as part of his sermon, here's what that uneducated man said to the dozen people who'd gathered there. He said, look to me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look to me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look to me, I'm dead and buried. Look to me, I rise again. Oh, poor sinner, look to me. And then that man fixed his gaze on that little visitor, the 15-year-old. And to Spurgeon, he said these words, Young man, you look very miserable, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death, if you do not obey my text. But if you now obey, this moment you will be saved. And then he shouted, young man, look to Jesus. Look, look, and live. And as Spurgeon looked back on that, he says it was at that point that as a young man that he repented and he believed and he was changed by the work of Jesus Christ tells us a couple things. One thing is it's not the messenger, right? It's the message. I love 1 Thessalonians 1.10 where it says this. It's Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. And the bottom line, this is true for all of us or anyone who may be listening to my voice, the bottom line is we are sinners and the judge is coming, but he has provided a way of deliverance and we should repent and look to Jesus. Earlier we looked at John 
3.36. He who believes in the Son, what? Happens, has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And how comforting are the words of Romans 10.13. Whoever, whoever, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How do we respond to what these verses have set before us today? Well, the first life response is to look to Jesus as your rescuer. The second life response for those of us who know him as a rescuer is to honor him in what you do and say every day. Romans 12, present We are told to present our bodies, that means to live our life as a living sacrifice, which he says is our reasonable spiritual service. To honor him in what we do and say every day. You know, there is a lyric, some lyrics we sang earlier this morning. I want to remind you of them. We sang earlier, released from my chains, I'm a prisoner no more. My shame as a ransom he faithfully bore. He canceled my debt and he called me his friend. Incredible. We also sang these words. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment, his life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And that, men and women, is why, by way of life response, we must honor him in what we do and say every day. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you so much for the incredible truths that Peter is laying out before us. And if any have heard my voice and they have not yet chosen to repent and to look to Jesus as their rescuer, we would pray they would do that right where they are right now and experience the forgiveness of Christ. And for those of us who know you, Father, may we remember that it is vital that we choose as a living sacrifice to honor Jesus in what we do and say every, every every day. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. 